Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. We're we're in the midst of this strange time where um, in our house, we did without power starting Monday until late yesterday. Thank goodness we have no frozen water pipes Mm. and no busted pipes, but it has been... um, One night when we slept in our bedroom, it was 46 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen pictures of friends showing that they can see their breath inside their house. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm grateful that we did not lose power. Um, and we kept our house, you know, we were kind of abiding by the recommendation that you keep your house running at about 65 so as not to put too much pressure on the grid. So it's been 65 in our house, which is fine. Um, we've just been without water at at any pressure we're getting a stream out of our kitchen faucet and can kind of wash dishes (laughs) and we can very slowly fill up containers to drink and boil if needed how about Um, in the rest of the house what's the water pressure like until this morning there was none um so we we have just been checking the faucets but this morning there's now a slow trickle throughout the rest of the house so we had good water pressure in upstairs and downstairs we live in a house that was built in 1939 yeah and we had extensive remodel several number of years ago and i think that probably provided some upgrade on the plumbing that that Mm -hmm. helped us um and i noticed that the water in the kitchen just was a trickle everywhere else is great but just in the kitchen with trickle. I finally figured out that I took a filter off the faucet, yeah. cleaned it out, then it yeah. worked perfectly. Yeah. A lot of people remove those those kind of nets from the water saving devices that operate on uh-huh. faucets just to get more pressure. I do it on my showers. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, it's so funny. So for those of you listening and wanting to imagine us, I have not showered in three days. <laughs> and my hair is nicely slicked back. Yeah. It all looks fresh and clean. But there's also, as we were just saying, a difference between city of Houston, those who operate under city of Houston water and you operate under sort of neighborhood water. Um, but there's um, the whole city, I think, is experiencing low water pressure. So, well, this has definitely been a crisis, and so many, many, many people have suffered. I, I wondered, um, I, I asked uh, Joseph, one of the security guards at mm-hmm. St. Paul's, uh, what was happening to the homeless people. Yeah. And he said that the uh, Metro was picking them up and taking them to shelters, which yeah. is which is good because it's too cold to be outside. Yeah, there were they were taking them to warming stations and I think picked up some bodies too, unfortunately. I mean, mm. this is, you know, I think what we're learning about Texas's infrastructure that A, it's woefully underprepared for something like this, but also that it by choice did not participate in the national grid. <laughs> So this kind of, you know, there's, I was thinking about this, there's, 
and we talked a little bit about our memories of Harvey last weekend, but this is the blessing and the curse of being Texan, I feel like. And states, I do think, have personalities. And one aspect of the Texan personality is this fierce, rugged independence. Um, you know, go get our bass boats and save people from the floods. Uh, the curse of that is we don't want our energy to be regulated with the rest of the nation. Let's just do it ourselves, you know. So I know it's deeper than that, but I think that we see the the binary or the duality of, of, of everything in times like this, right? How people can be so generous, but also how people can be so um, uncaring and selfish. <laughs> so I, as you know, I'm, I'm married to this woman who has a very intense and active travel gene. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, really grateful for that because because of her, we have been able to travel extensively. I'm really blessed by that. And um, I noticed early on when we would travel, we'd go to Spain, Italy, France, England, Ireland, Scotland, various places. And um, people would, if people would ask somebody from the United States, uh, are you from here or, or where are you from? They'd say, we're from the States, unless you're from Texas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's always, where are you from? We're from Texas. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> it, it puts us out there as being different. Yeah. There's parts of being Texan that I really love. And there's parts of being Texan that I. Embarrassed about. I'm embarrassed about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I want to put in a plug for our webinar with John Tucker, yeah. which is coming up on March the 9th. It's going to be here sooner than we know. And I really want to encourage people to buy a copy of his book, which is called Zero Theology. Both of us are likely to refer to this book on Sunday, this coming Sunday. I know you intend to. I mean, um, John Tucker's book is probably the best explication I have seen to date of what I call non-dual mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he skates right out there on thin air. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great one. Um, no, I, it's really good. Um, I, I've, yeah, it's totally worth reading. Do we have a link to that webinar yet? And shall we? Include oh yeah, it yeah. In it's, the on, it's, okay. on the, it's on the it's on the the landing page of the Ordinary Life website. Okay. On the right hand side is a link where you can <clears throat> register for the webinar. Of course, it's free, and John will be with us from seven to nine o'clock on on the um, Monday night. I think it's Monday night. Tuesday Great. Night. Yeah, it's, um, of the week it is. it's a it's Tuesday a night. It's yeah. a Tuesday night, yeah. <laughs> so that'll be exciting. I'll be so curious to um, hear from him and talk with him and um, to see what we learn. I think that... Are you going to come and be there in person? Uh, I thought we were doing it like the other webinar. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. So you'll yeah, be there. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I so. think I would like it for uh, in the dialogue for both of us to be involved with him. Sure, that'd be fun. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's an exciting and challenging book if you are still, um, well, I don't want to say still stuck, but that was what was going to come out of my mouth 
in this um, belief paradigm. How, how do I believe granted everything that we know? And this leads into a little bit about what we want to get into this week, which is about mystery. So yeah. it's, it's a book about shedding the mattresses of denial to get to the nothingness and everythingness of mystery. Yeah. And um, which is incredibly grounding and also incredibly um, suspending as well. You know, Holly, at the same time that we've been rereading, <laughs> I'm rereading the book for the second time. Um, I've also been on the faculty of this Bible study at St. Paul's Online okay. Bible Study in Ecclesiastes. And um, I confess, I had not read the book of Ecclesiastes since seminary days, probably. Mm -hmm. So it's a short book. And I so sat down and read it. And there's a great overlap between Ecclesiastes and John Tucker. Because Ecclesiastes is, it just rubs your face in uh, the reality of death. Mm. And John Tucker's book is saying that we create a lot of our theology yeah. to avoid the absolute grief yes. that is involved in being human. Yeah, this it reminds me in some ways, although um, Francis Weller is more of a process person, he's a, he's a psychologist, but he has a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And his premise in being, he's an eco-psychologist and a, and a, um, a, really a grief psychologist, but he, his premise is that we have lost a connection to groundedness. Um, so actually to the physicality of being, to the, our earth sense, um, and therefore our absolute grief when we lose someone because is that we don't have this groundedness to the to belonging to the earth. We don't have this groundedness to belonging in the here and now, and therefore we lack rituals around really being able to connect with loss. So, you know, one of the things that I think religion has done very successfully, and specifically the Christian religion, is take us out here, take us away from presence. Um, and, and therefore we've lost our ability to really be with feelings, with grief, with loss, and in a real present way. Um, there's a, I think I've talked to you about this before, <clears throat> an anthropologist um, and his, why well, they're both anthropologists do, did a lot of work in the um, kind of some of the Asian island um, indigenous peoples world and they discovered or learned about a, a new emotion, if you will. And that emotion in English would be pronounced something like ligat, um, but it's more guttural than that. And it's actually a sound that emits when, when great grief, great wailing, great weeping is felt. Um, so it's a kind of like, uh, it's a like, God, why have you forsaken me kind of sound or emotion? Um, and yet this shared experience when there is loss in this, in this community is that they sit around and A, tell stories, but also allow that sound to emit this liget, if you will, mm -hmm. to emit from their bodies. And that sound is connecting not only to their bodies, but to, their, to the earth. 
Um, I think that's something where we are missing in our culture. The the um, the the way that I think that Christian religion has gotten off the track is by assuring people that they won't die. Yeah. If you just believe in Jesus, then you're safe. And uh, what John Tucker is saying is that safety is something that is not dependent on circumstance. Right. Security is not dependent on circumstance. And so he's making a claim for what it means to live the authentic religious life that I don't think gets talked about very much. Mm -hmm. um, Especially is, not in religious circles, right? Uh, it, 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 <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know what impact it's had on anybody because I've not gotten any feedback mm -hmm. about it. But mm -hmm. I I said last week in class that the religion of the future is is cosmology. <clears throat> and 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 whatever happens in the realm of organized expression of religion is really gonna have to be more in the realm of poetry than in the realm of, well, we've got this figured out. Yeah. As we know. Right now, I'm um, TAing a course in my school uh, on the radical Martin Luther King with a guy named Drew Dellinger, whose PhD work was around the radical King and around um, King's cosmology. You know, King was talking about interconnectedness, interdependence, uh, in much the same way that um, he learned from Gandhi, from Howard Thurman, from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, that in so he, but he was trying to make this interdependence into a social movement. And one of the things that um, Drew Dellinger also is, is a poet. And so he's grappled in his poetry with um, justice with sort of the, the movement forward of civil rights and with cosmology. So thinking about justice as a cosmology, you know, um, and justice is essentially some obeyance of, um, of love, of radical love. And, you know, Cornel West said, um, justice is what love looks like in public. And um, some of my favorite mm -hmm. thinkers think along those lines. Mm -hmm. And King was, I would say, King was in that camp. Justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. And his cosmology was one that really called on um, people to be acting out of a sense of interdependence. And yet we have completely, and that's both a radical idea, but it's also just the way things are. And I think our humanness is that we sometimes resist the way things are you know, this need to kind of set a path. There's, speaking of poetry and mystery, there's another poet, David White, who I really like, who says that humans are the one species that haven't figured out how to be themselves, that we are exiled in a sense from our home because we keep pushing against the natural order of interdependence and interconnectedness. Mm. If you have a poem by Whites that expresses that, bring it Sunday. I sure will. I, I love his I love his stuff as well. Yeah. I think it's really powerful things. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of um we need to radicalize something so simple. <laughs> you know. 
now. Yeah. 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 So we're going to continue um, plowing through uh, our own response to this thing called the Lord's Prayer. And I, I was thinking in my own study and writing about it, which I've shared with you, that in most Christian uh, worship services, I'm talking now about the white Protestant liturgical tradition. I want to mm -hmm. come back and say something about the African-American tradition in, in, in a minute. Um, there are two set pieces that are included in every service. One is the Apostles' Creed. Some use the Nicene Creed. Um, the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. And uh, what I want to say is that the these documents... Um, are a picture frame that are bracketed on the front end and the back end by a statement of faith and a statement of thanksgiving. Mm. What amen means in both the creed and the prayers. So it's kind of like a doxology of praise. And the beginning is um, <clears throat> in the Apostles' Creed, I believe, a statement of creed. And in the Lord's Prayer, the first word is our. Mm -hmm. So in between those two words, you've got the picture yeah. and the picture changes depending on who uh, is viewing it and the context in which it is viewed, the time in which it's viewed. And I think that we white Protestant Christians have been so trapped by the, 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 insights and benefits of the enlightenment that we think that theology fits there yeah and it doesn't right it's not theology isn't a science and and so i i remember when uh, i was in seminary 50 years ago or more um that's all everybody had god figured out mm-hmm mm -hmm. God wasn't a pro God wasn't a problem. Right. Um, Jesus was a problem. <laughs> because ah. Everybody was trying to figure out who who Jesus really was and what Jesus really said and this and that. And uh, now it's turned upside down. I was going to say it feels like Jesus feels much simpler to me. I mean, he made a clear statement like, "Hey, y'all, we got to act like we're one." in this under the name of the father, so to speak, you know, right. um, we, we, this is the hour, you know, um, the other thing I think that, um, largely white Protestant religion has done is individualized the experience of religion and God, um, that, that might be more unique in America than it is in other places. I don't know. This is my context, but this individualized idea that I, have a direct line to God that's different, more special than, or um, more unique than anyone else. You know, that, that, do you remember after um, Harvey, and I'm sure that it happened this week, that there were many, many people who would say things like, oh, I'm so blessed. Like my lights came on. I prayed to God and, and my lights came on, you know, and, and insinuating that that direct line to God is theirs and theirs alone. And, there's just, if I have any understanding of God and, and I, and if I believe that Jesus is, is a messenger of wholeness, 
then I can only believe that God is about wholeness, you know, is about our, not about me. So, I think that's, we've got, we've just gotten so tripped up on the, it being about me. Yeah. And, and, and both, both Daramud and Muraku and John Tucker would say that it is the highest heresy mm-hmm. to, to uh, claim the position that God bless me. Mm-hmm. Because what that implies is <clears throat> that the street people who died last night, that was God's plan for them. That's right. That's right. Or that I should have power and that you shouldn't. Right. Like, I mean, this is these, these dividing lines that we create because I believe that it points at our absolute fear of not being important and of dying without feeling that sense of importance or belonging. But the way that we feel that importance and belonging is actually by contributing to the greater whole. And so uh, uh, the th- this this gives me an opportunity to justify what we're doing in ordinary life, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think that it is tempting to say, "Oh, we've already dealt with this. Mm. We've already dealt with the notion of God. So let's move on to something else." Mm. As if we could exhaust the topic. And besides, we need (laughs) to have it repeated over and over and over again that we are at the end of cosmological dualism and we are at the end of individual salvation. Mm -hmm. Those are so ingrained in the way that people think about life in general and about themselves that Mm -hmm. it sows the seeds of all the kind of social uh, injustice, racial injustice, economic injustice that we have going on today. I said a minute ago, I want to say something about the African-American uh, religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's poetic in its expression. Yeah. If you listen to the black preachers, they're expressing poetry. Mm-hmm. And there's a cadence and a rhythm and a poetic thrust to it. If you listen to the singing, there is a a ritualistic uh, expression of communal poetry that's pouring out. That is, um, I'm trying to open it really quickly, but this is, I just read, back to Martin Luther King, I just read an article um, by Leischer about Martin Luther King's style. And you know he comes from a, at least four generations of preachers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and the style um, is poetic and prophetic, mm-hmm. and um, it uses all sorts of like literary um, uh, metaphor and literary devices to mm-hmm. elicit emotion and response. And some of it, it, it feels is just like natural. Um, to the to the black preacher, in part, maybe it's some um, DNA memory of call and response of of of, of West African um, uh, whatever whatever stays in our cells, right, mm-hmm. from where we are from. But it, it's you know just it was really a great article reading about the rhythms and how rhythm is created in the way that the emphasis on certain words, you know, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Um, and it just. And of course, I find myself longing to be able to elicit that sort of 
response just with my voice. That may be one of the reasons I wish I could sing really well is <laughs> to elicit, <laughs> but yeah. I love what you said a minute ago about David White saying that the human animal is the only one that doesn't know how to be itself, himself. Mm -hmm. um, if we were being ourselves, what would look different? Mm. Gosh, my first answer is, well, for sure, we wouldn't have so much anxiety. Mm. We don't know. I don't, I don't personally know too many elephants, but when I consider the elephant, I don't think the elephant is anxious about how do I be an elephant? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm. Or what's the meaning of my life? Right. Or what happens when I die? Yeah. That sort of thing. They, yeah. they, they see it and they actually grieve it. You know, they, uh, elephants are remarkable, but um, yeah, I mean, just this, it gets down. I think that's the brilliance of John Tucker's book is just really pointing at our absolute grief is about running the hell away from death as fast as we can. And mm -hmm. the things that we've put in between us and death to make it less real mm -hmm. is what makes us anxious. He tells a story in the book about John Wesley on one of his crossings to the colonies. The ship that they were on was in a <clears throat> big major storm and Wesley was really impressed with the faith of, of the Moravians because they weren't afraid in the storm. And, and Tucker says that, you know, if you're in a storm, in a boat, on a sea, it makes every sense in the world to be afraid. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy not to be because you mm -hmm. want to take precautions and do what needs to be done. And yet there is, there is a safety and a serenity that is available for what Tucker would call the um, liberated religious person mm -hmm. that is not anxious and that anxiety is not dependent on circumstance. I'm mm -hmm. not explaining that well, but there is a there is a peace that passes understanding. Right, right, and that can be felt. This this touches the edges of Viktor Frankl's work too. That mm. what is um, what gives you the sense that there is something more than um, and by that something more, I don't mean out there. I mean Viktor Frankl was Jewish, so he wasn't. Uh, theologically concerned with the afterlife, <laughs> but he, but there's, there was some piece that passed understanding that he felt contributed to those who could stay alive during the Holocaust, who could grasp that meaning mm -hmm. and those who, who didn't. But, and some of that, of course, I am, what I just said made it sound like only those who had hope died in the Holocaust. They were murdered. There were so many that were murdered, but those who were on the very edge of death and didn't succumb, mm -hmm. he talks about this, this piece that passes understanding that kept them holding on to life. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to die in those circumstances, right? Or at least contemplated how much easier death would be than being tortured. But some sense that there is something more to life than this, you know, was for him the dis a distinguishing factor between those who gave up and those who kept 
trying to stay alive. And, and I think that something more is both experienced and expressed in a community of uh, that's built around myth and metaphor and parable mm -hmm. and poetry and not out of the arrogance that says, I have the right belief. Right. That's so true. There's so, so many great poets that speak to this. I've got three in my mind right now. <laughs> I feel like Mary Oliver is like the patron saint of mystical poetry in some ways. Mm -hmm. So maybe a good place to stop is by reading a poem that I pulled up from her before we got on. Um, she calls it, when I am among the trees. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, um, let's hope. Uh, I know we're a day late getting this podcast done. Yeah, but we'll just, we may not be very edited today. We might just put it out there. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been, the, uh, this has been a very uh, unusual and difficult week. And there's still many, many people who are suffering yeah. a lot yeah. this time. So yeah. I will see you Sunday morning. Yeah, you will. I hope I'm bathed. <laughs> Talk okay. to you soon. <laughs> Bye.